a Lifetime Original Podcast. This episode covers topics that include murder and violence. Listener discretion is advised. Quinn, yeah. thank you so much for having me over on my birthday. Oh my God, I loved that you wanted to spend your birthday with a me. No, thank you. You know, I was, I've was i been stressed because I've been moving and stuff, and so it was so nice to just have a home to go to. And, and everyone and, was in such a good mood, and it was so fun, right? That was like really was fun. And that spread. Oh, it was such a good spread. We had like hummus. We had lobna. And I love a shared plate. I love a metze. I love a metze. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So like imagine we're hanging out, eating a metze spread. Yeah. And I stand up and I go, hey, everyone, this has been so fun. Thank you for coming. I have to tell you, I actually have to leave because of I, I have some administrative stuff to take care of and I need to turn myself into the FBI. Whoa, uh, that'll change the mood of, of a dinner party, I would say. That's essentially what happens in our case. And I think we I think we got to just jump in. I think we got to talk about all of it. Yeah, because uh, a dinner party gone wrong is really the least dramatic thing that happens, even though it is very dramatic because you've got you've got fake identities. You've got people living uh, double lives. You have death. You've got a bank yeah. robbery and someone on the run for decades. Oof. Could you imagine? I can't. This but is someone's reality. Th- you know, this is someone's straight up reality. This right. was someone's reality. And I think here we go. We got to tell you about it. I'm Quinlan Posner. And I'm Carrie Ipema. And this is Crime of a Lifetime. if you're me, you can watch Forrest Gump way too young and not totally understand the political ramifications and then discover it older. It's a bit of a weird thing, but maybe you're not, I'm not alone in that. So it's 1967, and Catherine Ann Power enrolls in Brandeis University, which is in Massachusetts. And this university, I would say, is not like a, a moderate vibe. I would I would argue that it is quite progressive in the anti-war protests of the time, and it's not afraid to make its opinions known. And just an example of this energy is the Dow Chemical Company is coming to campus and they want to recruit students to join their company, right? And the students decide "Mm, they don't really love this company on campus, so they threaten to protest them by napalming a dog. What? Okay, so just backstory, Dow Chemical actually created napalm. And it's this uh, it's this war chemical that is used heavily in Vietnam. And it burns forests, it kills soldiers, it destroys equipment. So in their mind, they're going, ha-ha, here's a way to protest. Let's kill a dog, because that'll show them. Wow. Uh, passionate, I guess? Um <laughs> I, they are passionate. I mean, they they do a lot of other things, too. They provide sanctuary to a soldier that goes AWOL during the Vietnam War. They sleep in a circle around him to guard him. And they're making a plan for what they're going to do if they get busted harboring him. They just, they have a very strong sense of justice. And this sense of justice strangely matches up with Catherine's upbringing as a Catholic. There's a mission to do right by your fellow man. Uh, in both Catholicism and with these students. I mean, they don't extend this to dogs. Like, 
They'll kill a dog, but they'll protect a man. And we all know all dogs go to heaven. No, I, I think what's I think what we're trying to communicate here is that not only is this school like a hotbed for progressive politics and radical ideas, but I think also you mentioned that she's Catholic. And I want to just be very clear. She's not like just casually Catholic, okay? She's like super duper, duper Catholic. She's a type of Catholic where her aunts and uncles are nuns and priests. And I think part of her motive for going to Brandeis University is to get away from this like structure of her Catholic upbringing. And so when she goes, when she enters Brandeis University, I think she experiences a bit of a culture shock, right? Imagine coming from a Catholic family to the free love in 60s. And I think to what you're saying, I think she finds some peace and some recognition into this anti-war movement. Sure. Um, Because she's not really like a radical lefty activist. She's more a preppy conservative with a righteous cause. I feel like you might even label her a goody-goody, but Mm -hmm. then it's the 1970s and things start to heat up both in the world around her and in the world within, in her own head. It's Catherine's junior year. The U.S. military expands the war into Cambodia in a massive bombing campaign. And in the U.S., anti-war protesters are massacred in the infamous Kent State shooting, perpetrated by the National Guard. Now, when this happened, four students got killed, nine were wounded, and all of them were unarmed. And these two events changed things for Catherine. She feels absolutely pushed to take action. It's the end of Catherine's junior year, and she helps found the National Student Strike Information Center. Don't the name doesn't roll off the tongue. No. I'll tell I'll tell you that. That's my note. Okay. But its headquarters are at Brandeis University, and she's the acting press secretary for the strike committee there. Big job, right? She starts to use her voice more and she sees her political influence grow. At the same time, she's experiencing a bit of disillusionment with the political process. I think she is this idealist radical. And when she finds the political process to move slower than she'd like, I think she gets a bit yeah, frustrated. I by think that. you're right. I think that it's probably a feeling also, I talked about her being goody-goody. It's this vibe of she wants to be a rule follower and she believes totally. that if you follow the rules, you will do right by the world. And then when she's in college, I think that ideology starts to break down and As she gets more involved in activism, she's like, wait a minute. If you act within the system and what it allows for, you don't actually accomplish anything. You you have to break the rules. You have to get your hands dirty if you want something to change. And in the summer of 1970, she's offered a leadership position within the MOBE, which is a conference of national anti-war protesters. And this conference is a big deal. It's a national organization that has helped lead protests all over the U.S. In fact, Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King, they're associated with it. This is a big honor to be asked to join their leadership. Yeah, they want Catherine, this little girl. Sorry, Catherine, I know you're grown up, but really, you're 20. Go to Cuba, go to Vietnam as their representative. Catherine, this is so exciting. This is your abroad opportunity. They want her to go out and lecture around the country. And if somebody offered me a plane ticket to any of these places, I'd take it. I'd say yes. Catherine says no. Would you go to Vietnam in the middle of a war, Quinn? Of course. Have you had Vietnamese food? (laughs) Delicious. Also, you do have a weird track record of going on a vacation to places that are a bit suspect. If you don't know, famously, Quinn went... Right after Natalie Holloway was kidnapped, Quinn was like, I'm going to go to that island. That's great. She went to Aruba. She said, <laughs> when they were shooting rockets into Israel, went there. I just, I like. Went there. You know, to you like the danger. on edge when I travel. Um, what's wrong with me? Well, Catherine says no. She rejects this yeah. offer. She is afraid of all the power that comes with it. She thinks that that will corrupt her. And then maybe she'll just become a cog in this system that she thinks is not a great system. It's not working well. So she she recedes from the front lines of the anti-war movement and she goes underground. Because 
Catherine doesn't want to be famous. She wants to stop the war. Yeah. Her motives, I think, are really pure at this point. And she has a little bit of a meet-cute with this guy, Stanley Bond. A little bit about Stanley Bond. Um, just to you know, put into perspective, if my friend started dating Stanley, I don't think I would approve, okay? He's a Vietnam War veteran turned convict turned Brandeis student. A jack of all trades. How how did he do that? Well, I'll tell you. He used to pilot helicopters for the military. And then when he came back to the U.S., I think like a lot of Vietnam soldiers, he went in a downward spiral. He committed 20 armed robberies, which landed him in prison. And from there, they started this program where he became a candidate for a new parole experiment at Brandeis, which was they would take convicts and then they would bring them to campuses to see if they could really turn their life around. Well, and he was essentially, picture he's in prison, they pluck him out, they drop him on a campus. And Stanley is this presence, you know, he's articulate, he's kind of a muscular guy, he's pretty cocky, I gotta say, and he is running around campus bragging about his gun to students, and he even threatens to kill some members of the faculty. I mean... This guy is a loose cannon. I actually believe in a program like this. I like the idea of giving people who've, you know, um, made poor choices to turn their life around. I think it's a really admirable idea. What I don't think they did is vet the candidates very much. According to The New Yorker, there's actually a rumor that after these threats, after he's brandishing his gun and bragging to his friends – They really don't do much about it because they really want this prison-to-college parole experiment to work. They're kind of turning a blind eye, right? Yeah, totally. You could see that where they're like, this has to look like a success for it to keep going. Talk about like trying to fight for the greater good. So we're going to get a few bad eggs, and if we can all just keep our heads down so it doesn't get any bad press, maybe we can keep doing this thing. So instead of being kicked off campus and sent back to prison, Stanley Bond stays on campus and meets Catherine Ann Power. And I wouldn't have thought it, but he is her type. And it seems like she's his type. They're type perfect. I, I question that. I I question whether that was <laughs> a strategy fair. move on his part. I think he likes people that are going to have a little bit of a warshipy relationship to him. And yeah, I think she, com- she sees she him, him to a she's rock wide-eyed. Star. She's like, wow, look at this guy. And he's like, great. Just the Imagine- kind of babe I like. A babe that looks at me like that. And he probably called her a babe. Yeah, he's a bit of a rock star. I've been pretty specific in what I think the relationship was like. But what Catherine Power tells The New Yorker is that she saw Stanley Bond as her soulmate. But I got to insist. I got to I got to insist and say, Catherine, I don't know. Isn't this like your first boyfriend? Are you sure that's what you saw him at? I think she's a late bloomer. She's getting attention from this sexual guy. You know what I see it as? And maybe it's because his name is Stanley. I see it as a, a streetcar named Desire vibe. Like he's the Stanley and she's... Mm-hmm. She's not totally a Blanche, so just follow me, though, for a minute. She is a fragile person that needs a little bit of guidance, and Stanley comes in, and he, like, is ready to grab and take whatever he wants, and he's all id in a lot of ways. So this is, you know, we all know what happened to Blanche. This is not a safe situation. (laughs) It's not going to go well. No, but I also think, too, I think – we have to understand that we're meeting Catherine in power when she is feeling frustrated at the status quo and she's feeling frustrated at the mm-hmm. inaction. And here she is. She meets someone who gets it done and who also was a Vietnam War veteran, right? right I think true. that is not to be skirted away from either. I think she sees him as this like promising person who gets stuff done. She thinks they're aligned politically, you know, but – I think he does have ulterior motives, as I think, you know, you and I are both on the same page as having a couple more years than, you know, Catherine and Power has. I think we both can go, this isn't going to go well. This isn't going to go <laughs> well girl. for you. But, you know, she's going to do what it takes to sort of fulfill her goals. And they do have 
similar goals as far as uh, political beliefs go, and they want to start recruiting people who also share in these goals. One of their recruits is Susan Sachs, and she's a woman's rights activist and a recent graduate of Brandeis. And she's a lot like Catherine. She's smart, she's headstrong, and she's also very politically motivated. The two other recruits are more like Stanley, Robert Valeri and William Gilday. They're ex-convicts too, and they're also in this experimental parole program. And they're at schools in Boston. Huge age gap here, by the way. Uh, Robert's the young guy. He's 21. William's 41. And even though they're in this program, neither one of them's hitting the books. They're not showing up in class. And, you know, actually, now that I think about it, neither one is actually really interested in politics either. Together, so there's five of them, right? Catherine, Stanley, Susan, Robert, and William. They start to work together um, in the anti-war cause. At least that's what Catherine believes is happening. Their plan is they're going to rob banks and then they are going to use the money to supply weapons to the Black Panthers. And in addition, they would buy equipment and chemicals that they would need to weld military trains in their tracks so that they will not transport weapons. They'll be stuck. It's like a cartoon. Um, this is quite an escalation, though, in tactics. <laughs> stuck I mean, like a cartoon. <laughs> yeah, that's what I picture. <laughs> That's actually where they got the idea. It was interesting. (laughs) They're watching a cartoon late one night. From cartoons to criminal. Uh, It does feel like that's what's happening, though, because Catherine's like demure, a rule follower a little bit. And now this is pretty radical stuff, right? These plans. But again, she's thinking of this as a righteous cause for a greater good. And I think that The end goal is in sight. If they do one thing that helps to stop the war, then it is worth it. Right. The the ends justify the means. According to The New Yorker, in August and September of 1970, our group, the Fearsome Five, they travel all over the U.S. to meet other like-minded radical groups. Susan Sachs, what she's doing, she's buying guns, she's buying ammo, and a shooter's Bible, which I didn't know was a thing. It's a user guide to guns, so probably what it sounds like. Um, And she's doing all of this in Portland, Oregon, and she even goes as far as to join a gun club. Fun. In Northern California, Stanley teaches Catherine and Susan how to shoot a rifle. Montage. The group eventually puts all their training to work. According to The New Yorker, they rob banks in Los Angeles, in Evanston, Illinois, in Philadelphia. I don't know if you caught that, but that's across the United States. They steal cars, they transport guns, and on at least one occasion, they actually hold up a motel manager so they can use his ID to rent a car. There are police records that indicate Susan participates in crimes and even carries a Molotov cocktail that Bond made out of a tampon soaked in lighter fluid. And to be honest, when I heard that, I was like, this is an idea. This is how the new tampon commercials should (laughs) go. Instead of the blue dye. Instead of, yeah, that blue alien liquid. Let's just see how these pads and tampons hold up to lighter fluid. Makes sense. It definitely is a creative use for a pad. I'm going to watch that commercial and I'm going to think twice. I'm going to see what I want them to do is a time lapse of how long it burns out and go, you know what? That's I know that's going to hold more. And mm-hmm. I like that. I, I like want that. my tampon to burn for Hanukkah. I want an eight, eight night tampon. <laughs> <laughs> that's so good. <laughs> Hanukkah tampons, the tampon for you. Toxic shock syndrome not included. Okay. In in those two months, just two months, that group steals $45,000. And at this point, Stanley controls all the money. He's in charge of giving out the money for group expenses. And one might call him pretty tight-fisted about this cash. Yeah. And I have to say, Catherine does deny participation in most of these crimes. She says she never went inside a bank. But This is her crew. They're the Fearsome Five. They're her comrades. These are the people she is known to run with. Yeah. I mean, it's not like she's going in the banks, but she's also not telling on them. She's Mm -hmm. also probably, I would venture, 
helping organize because she's she got to be like making sandwiches for them or something. She's well, that's a little sexist. I'm sure she's <laughs> planning. I'm sure she has rules that she wants them to follow. Okay, but she's not going to stay on the sidelines for long. The next job is a big one, and she's armed and ready. <laughs> Can we get a locked and loaded sound effect? There it is. The National Guard is the military arm in charge of keeping protests calm. We have already seen the way that they deal with anti-war activism because they're the ones who get called into dampen to quell protests. And sometimes they use deadly force. Kent State just happened, like I said. And so the Fearsome Five, this motley crew that Catherine is part of, they're aware of this. So it does make sense in a lot of ways that that is who they want to target. According to The New Yorker, on September 20th, 1970, Catherine and her friends, the Fearsome Five, they break into the Newburyport National Guard Armory in northeastern Massachusetts. That's a big job. Yeah. Uh, to say that Catherine breaks in, you know, it's kind of a, it's an overstatement. Her job is to make sandwiches. No, just <laughs> kidding. It's not. Her job is to watch outside. But she doesn't prove to be um, a very threatening presence, uh, revolutionary though she might be. She basically hides in the bushes and barfs all over her gun while her comrades are inside firebombing the armory. Yeah, well, I think this kind of puts it into perspective who she is. I think she's a little bit all talk, right? Yeah. And. I can't help but feel bad for her a little bit at this point because I feel bad for anyone just barfing. <laughs> it's really a sad thing to happen, but I, but also it's like I think she just like really wants to be cool and be with her friends, but she's throwing up. And could you imagine her coming back and telling them, "Hey guys, they're just sitting in the bushes. Someone threw up on my gun. I don't, I don't know how it happened. <laughs> no. so it wasn't squirrel. me. I don't." <laughs> It was a squirrel came out. It was so weird. I'm fine. And she's like shaking and green. She's like, I'm totally Aww. fine. Let's keep <laughs> bombing. Great. Um, <laughs> but listen, this heist goes off pretty well, right? The group is able to steal two cars, some military equipment, rifles, ammo, walkie-talkies, blasting caps. They also, very importantly, find papers that detail the National Guard's plan to quell riots in Boston. And what they do with those papers is anonymously mail them to the Boston press. This robbery is a massive success. And they head back to Boston with all of the stuff they got. And they're going to distribute it to local radicals. Yeah. And I just feel like it's like a party when they show up with this stuff. Because imagine getting to be like, there's five of us. We stole this stuff from the National Guard. It, they just must be like, this lights a fire even more under your ass because you say to yourself, there's nothing we can't do. What should we do next? Because we can accomplish anything. I also, again, I want to just bring it back to sort of where we're at at the time. And what happened at Kent State, the deaths of students happened at the hands of the National Guard. So I think them... Stealing from the National Guard also probably was a bit more personal, right? I mean, they were college students. It could have very easily been Brandeis University. It just was Kent State. So I think there's a little bit of that happening. And I think after this successful robbery, they start getting bigger ideas. Like some of them even talk about possibly bombing the Cambridge Police Department. It's like any version of authority there is an immense distrust of, and they've got like a little taste of power and they want more and more and more. We don't actually know what they would have accomplished because in just a few days after this, the Fearsome Five, they're going to run their last heist. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. 
Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. On September 22nd, Stanley Bond sets out to scope the group's next target, which is a bank. And Stanley's scoping it out while Catherine is going back to Brandeis to check in on some friends, say a howdy, say a hello. Listen, I got to say, my God, it's been two days since they robbed the armory. Don't you think they could maybe rest a little? Like They, they deserve a rest. Wow. They deserve a little rest, but I guess no rest for the wicked because, you know, while all of this robbing, stealing, and revolution is happening, um, Catherine, it's also been the summer of love for her, right? Mm -hmm. In the little free time that she has between heists and bombings and throwing up on her gun, um, she (laughs) decides, hey, I'm going to go back to Brandeis. I'm going to see some friends. It's, you know, the summer before her senior year. And she sees them and she tells them, guys, listen, I'm, I think I'm in love with Stanley Bond, to which her friends probably are a little concerned. And she even tells them that she's not even sure if she's coming back next year to finish her senior year. And spoiler alert, she won't be. The next day, September 23rd, 1970, Catherine and the Fearsome Five go to the State Street Bank in Brighton, Massachusetts. William Gilday sits in the getaway car, getaway car number one, out front. Getaway car number two is stationed six blocks from the bank, and that's Catherine's job. And then you have the three that are going to see most of the action, the three tasked with actually going in. You have Susan Sachs, disguised in a red wig and a long purple dress, bold choices all around. You have Robert Valeri, who has a stocking cap and sunglasses on. A little less creative. We'd have loved to see something a little bolder, Robert. And then you have Bond. Stanley Bond. This crew is armed with handguns, a shotgun, a submachine gun. Susan and Robert follow behind their leader, Stanley, as he disarms a guard and demands money from the tellers. And the teller hesitates a little bit to put cash in the bag. And so Stanley takes his gun and he shoots two bullets into the ceiling, which certainly motivates the tellers. And they hand over about $26,000 in cash. But also while this is happening, the teller has secretly alerted the police to the robbery in progress. Officer Walter Schroeder and his partner are the first cops to arrive on the scene. And Officer Schroeder is a highly decorated officer who has saved a ton of lives. Perhaps even more impressively, this gentleman is a father of nine kids. A saint, to be sure. He must be exhausted. In 1968, he received the highest honor, the Walter Scott Medal for Valor, for disarming three bank robbers. So this situation, showing up to something like this, I'm sure his adrenaline is pumping, but it is not new for him. He's a brave guy. That's why they called him to the scene. And he draws his gun and he goes to enter the bank. What he doesn't see at this time is William Gilday in that number one getaway car in front of the bank. So as he's running in, he leaves William behind him with a submachine gun pointed at his back. William Gilday pulls his trigger and he fires 30 rounds at the police officers Officer Schroeder, he tries to get out of the gunfire as soon as he hears it, but it's too late and a bullet hits him in the back. So Officer Schroeder's partner immediately gets him inside their cruiser and they book it to the hospital. 
And they drive the same way every day. They drive past Officer Schroeder's mom, who sits on her front porch, and she always likes to wave at her son as he passes. And they go by, and she waves, and nobody waves back. I don't think his partner can fathom what to do in that situation because he doesn't know what the future holds. He just has to get his partner to the hospital. And meanwhile, Catherine is six blocks away, none the wiser, just sitting in her car, waiting for the other group to meet her. Yeah, she's very disjointed from this whole scene. But getaway car number one, this blue Chevy, pulls up er, next to her. Susan, Stanley, and Robert jump out of that car and then hop into her station wagon. Stanley and Robert hide under a blanket in the back seat while Catherine slides from the driver's seat and Susan takes the wheel. Not They don't even trust her to drive. She's not even the getaway driver. They don't driver. even let her drive. She's the getaway <laughs> babysitter. Yeah, she's just keeping the engine running. Mm-hmm. That's literally all she is doing. She, why was she sitting in the driver's seat? It doesn't make any sense. Um, and the four of them speed away, thinking that the heist went off without a hitch. They got their money. No one got hurt in their eyes. But that can't be farther from the truth. Because Officer Schroeder is on his way to the hospital fighting for his life. Catherine and her comrades return to her Boston apartment with their $26,000 haul, completely unaware that their, quote, success has come at the cost of a man's life. They turn on the radio to hear the news of the robbery, and that's when they learn that William Gilday shot a cop. And this is not what Catherine and Susan signed up for, right? They believe they're helping save lives with their anti-war effort. They are not on board with killing anyone. But on some level, they know they bear responsibility, right? And they're pissed. They do not like this. Their whole purpose is to stop the senseless violence of war. And now they find themselves involved in something they know is wrong. Yeah. And they voice this concern. They're upset. Stanley Bond doesn't agree. He feels the opposite. He defends William's actions and calls it brave. Ugh. I feel there's going to be some tension in this relationship, right? As a sign of goodwill, Stanley puts $4,000 in a lens cap and tells everybody, I'm going to send this to the wife of the injured cop if he dies. The bills are too traceable for us to use anyway. And it's also like, really, dude, $4,000? You're going to give her $4,000 for her husband, her for the father of these nine children? It's almost worse than not doing anything. Yeah. Just to think that that amount of money could fill a hole that a person left behind, it it breaks my heart. And I think in this moment, it says a lot about who Stanley Bond is. And it says a lot, I, I assume, to Catherine about who he is. Totally. I think at this point, right, they've been continuing on this sort of conveyor belt of radical um, anti-war sentiment. And then in this moment, it's like the conveyor belt stops. It comes to a screeching halt, I think, in a lot of ways for Catherine and Susan to go, whoa, do we know these guys at all? Yeah. Are we aligned politically at all? What is the point? And, you know, Stanley doesn't give barely any remorse to what he's done or what they're involved with. And he's in survival mode. He's got to get the hell out of Dodge. He knows the police are after them. So so Catherine cuts her hair. She dyes it red. She wants to change her appearance so that no one will recognize her. And Stanley sends her out to get a new used car so they can drive from Boston to Philadelphia. Um, and at 10, 12 the next morning, the group finds out that Officer Schroeder succumbed to his wounds, and he passes away, and he dies. He leaves behind a wife and nine kids, and his death sparks a manhunt that will force them all on the run. Yeah, I mean, robbery is one thing. You kill a cop, they're they're after you. Meanwhile, Robert Valeri, the young ex-con who Stanley recruited, leaves the comrades behind. He's like, you know what? I'm out of here. I think this was too rich for his blood as well. He gets himself picked up by the police. And, it, you know, we don't know what happened. We don't know if he did that on purpose or by accident. But whatever happened, he's shortly after in custody going to confess to everything and tell them William Gilday shot Officer Schroeder and that he did it not because he had to, not because he was in danger, but because he wanted to kill a cop. 
His testimony becomes state's evidence, and he becomes an informant in exchange for a reduced sentence for his participation in the crimes. And Robert Valeri is charged for these crimes. He's charged with manslaughter and robbery. But all the other four, they're gone. They're on the run. So Catherine, she's on the run along with her friends, and Catherine takes this opportunity to do another costume change. She changes her parents again in the days following their escape from Boston. She is not taking any, any chances. And Susan Sachs at this point is already in hiding elsewhere. And our lovebirds, Catherine and Stanley, are traveling together still, and they do so all the way to Atlanta before they split up, but they make plans to meet up again later. And Stanley's like, here, take this suitcase uh, to St. Louis for me. I want you to take a plane there. And she's like, okay, I'll do what you tell me. This suitcase he gives her explodes at baggage claim, injuring two workers. I know. He had stowed a cocked and loaded shotgun in the suitcase. So this luggage explodes on the baggage carousel. And like anytime something explodes at an airport, it's a big deal. It draws a lot of attention. And Catherine is sitting there in her new disguise. And she sees all this commotion waiting for her flight. And she sees this group of guys running towards her. And they run right past her. And they start (sighs) looking through her tickets on the flight. Because they're able to identify the baggage belonged to this flight. So they think, okay, the person who it belonged to is probably there. And they're right. So she's standing there at the airport watching them calmly. Her heart must be racing, but she has to keep this poker face on and stay calm. And she knows they're going to find her ticket eventually, right? And so as slyly as she can, she just walks away from her gate and she heads towards the airport exit. Just, I can imagine her just like, don't look back, stay calm, don't run, walk, And as she's leaving, she hears her fake name called over the intercom. Within the week, Stanley Bond and William Gilday are arrested. Now, in both cases, I find this so interesting. It's a hubris and stupidity cocktail that does them in. Because for Stanley's part, he picks up some foreign chick and he's like, let's have a sleepover. And they do. And he's like, you want to hear something cool? I robbed a bank and killed a cop. And she's like, LOL. I actually don't think that's cool. And I have to go. And she basically just turns around and heads to the police and turns him in. And when the police arrive, Stanley, gentleman that he is, is like, you know, I thought about killing her last night. And you're like, what a guy. Stanley, no one to keep your mouth shut. No one to fold him. No one to hold him. But of course, this cocky jerk is bragging about this. And Thank God for this woman going, "Uh uh-huh, like, imagine her, how calm she had to be. She'd go, wow, that is cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. That's awesome. I have to go. I actually have to go. I can't join you. I'm so sorry. I got to go. Bye. And then telling the police and getting him caught. William is caught after a police chase in New Hampshire. Now, he apparently aroused suspicion at a bar when he drunkenly started waving around and showing off all his money. These men. These men. These men. Wow. It feels so stupid and obvious, but these men. Meanwhile, Catherine and Susan feel no need to brag about it to any young, new, hot people, and they aren't waving money around at a bar. And to be honest, the FBI is having a really difficult time searching for women. They understand that, you know, what men are capable of doing about bragging and things like that. But with women, they just don't even know where to start, where to look. And Susan and Catherine actually immediately get in contact with their anti-war movement contacts and they go underground. With the help of their comrades, they get fake IDs and they get sort of menial jobs as clerks where they can present their fake social security numbers. And because it's before the internet, you know, background checks aren't as accessible. They're able to stay at these jobs for months at a time until the numbers come back as fraudulent. So they would work someplace for four months and then they'd move to another place when their cover is blown. And they figure as long as they just keep moving, they're going to be hard to track. The FBI is trying to chase them down, though. They are after them and they stay on the two women's trail and they are offering folks reward for this capture. And they are listed on the FBI's top 10 most wanted list. 
Ooh, their names and photos are broadcast on TV, but according to The New Yorker, Catherine's friends at Brandeis say the FBI actually never goes to Brandeis to talk to them, to ask them anything. Susan and Catherine spend the next year and a half on the run together. They travel from town to town, and with all of this time together and shared secrets, they get really close. And according to Catherine, the two of them actually start a romantic relationship. Yeah, it makes sense to me. It's They are living a life yeah. that is filled with secrecy, but not from each other. So that would create a very powerful bond. And they really need someone to have their back, and they have each other's backs. Then, after a year and a half of this running around, in the spring of 1972, they finally get what they need to normalize their lives and to settle down, stop running. They get fake IDs with real social security numbers. So Susan now becomes Lena Paley, and Catherine becomes May Kelly. And with these new identities, they can stop this running. They can finally start to live a normal life. But with these new identities, it comes with some strings. They only work as long as Susan and Catherine are committed to them. And that means they have to leave their old lives completely behind. They can't contact their families or anyone from their past, um, which must be really hard on their families, frankly, because doing so would risk everything. Because you know the police are bugging all of their families, hoping that they'll contact them. Yeah, of course. That is so sad, like the feeling of like wanting to call to just say you're okay and knowing that it's too high risk. And your family probably knowing the same. Um, And I think that the pressure of that, of keeping that a secret, means that when you meet someone that you really do trust that sort of makes their way into your inner circle, you've got that like your up nights being like, do I tell them? Like, I want to feel connected to somebody in a real meaningful way. And that happens. That happens with Catherine because she gets really close to a leader among this feminist movement who becomes a dear, dear friend. And she also sort of serves as this protector figure in the community. So I imagine she also has almost a motherly vibe or makes Catherine feel safe. So Catherine is like, I think I can trust her maybe with the truth. And I feel like somebody needs to know. Yeah. And Catherine and Susan live the next two years in Connecticut, forming new friendships with feminist activists. And Catherine, at night, she would go dancing at lesbian bars. And during the day, she was a nurse's aide. She also worked in a health food shop as a chef's assistant. So she's getting some new skills here. In the summer of 1974, things are starting to heat up again because the newspapers in the Northeast are starting to print their pictures again. The FBI is still on their trail. And it's around this time that Catherine's friend, the one she confided in her true identity, she starts to act a little distant. She gets a little weird. um, And she can't confirm why she's being a little strange. But it probably has to do with the fact that the FBI, knowing that they're in these women's communities, are putting a lot, a lot of pressure on these communities. Well, I think she's emotionally distancing herself from Catherine and feels terrible because behind her back, she's had this pressure put on her. And uh, did she crack? Catherine's wondering did that. She crack? Catherine's like, this is a new vibe coming from you. It's a little hostile. Don't love it. Doesn't seem to bode well. So in October of 74, she's like, I better get out of here. And she leaves Connecticut with plans to meet up with Susan. And she was right. She leaves just in time. Within hours of her departure, the FBI swoops into town searching for her, and they leave no stone unturned. They find Catherine's lesbian friends, and according to Catherine, they threaten to expose their sexuality to their family and employers unless they give them information on Catherine and Susan. That is an incredibly dirty tactic. Ugh, horrible. And at this time in American history, which I am an expert on, pretty much anywhere in the U.S., you could get fired for being gay. You could get evicted. There were not any kind of protections like there are today. And even in I mean, today, we're pretty lacking. But Totally. But essentially outing these women and threatening outing these women for information on Catherine and Susan feels totally unethical. Totally unethical. 
Yeah, because it's it's becomes a little bit of a witch hunt as well, where if you don't talk, if you don't, it's, you know, if you don't bust your friend, guess what? You're going to jail. And that is exactly what happens. There's a woman in Kentucky who was good friends of theirs who ends up going to jail for more than a year because she won't cooperate. And it's so crazy because she's doing this to keep Catherine essentially out of jail, really. I mean, I don't even know if she's aware of that, but it's like Catherine must be aware of it and seeing that there is this woman who's serving time and it was all in the name of protecting her. But despite acts of the solidarity, the FBI does catch Susan. So Susan is arrested in Philadelphia in 1975 and she's charged with manslaughter and armed robbery. So after years on the run... The fearsome five, they're all behind bars except for Catherine. She's the last remaining member of this ragtag radical group on the run. And she's the only one that's escaped capture. In 1977, she obtains a new birth certificate and social security number. And now she's going to become Alice Metzinger. She moves to Oregon. And again, finally, after being on the run really for a second bout, life returns to normal. All but Catherine have paid a price for their revolutionary activities. So let's give you a where are they now moment. Susan Sachs serves eight years for manslaughter and armed robbery. Robert Valeri serves time for the same charges. William Gilday is convicted of murder and he's sentenced to life in prison. In fact, he's still serving time today. Stanley Bond, on the other hand, never really could accept that return to prison. It only takes him 19 months to say, I'm getting out of here. And he has an attempted prison break. Unfortunately, I think you will recall that Stanley has a little bit of a problem with hubris and cockiness and half-baked schemes. And he thought he could build a bomb to blow his way out, but he ends up just blowing himself up. Catherine She decides to go out west, Oregon Trail. She settles down in Corvallis, Oregon, which is about 90 miles south of Portland, Oregon. With her new documents and identity under her belt, she finally has all she needs to evade the FBI indefinitely. She's Alice Metzinger, a real-life person with a real-life Social Security card and a birth certificate to boot. She gets a driver's license under this new name. In a sense... At this point, she's able to sort of breathe a sigh of relief because she's no longer on the run. Yeah, and you can get all these documents that make you this new person, but you can't erase your past. And Catherine has a lot of baggage, right? And Alice maybe supposedly should have none. So it's this question of how many lies do you tell? We were talking about how you want to feel close to people. Um how how many lies do you tell to somebody before you're like, you really don't know me at all? And, and she's tasked with sort of creating a fake backstory. And the more her life is made up, the more she's going to feel right. this disconnect with people she's getting close to. She wants to return to normalcy more than anything. And even if on paper she's on the run, she's trying to find a way to not feel right. like she's and on the run in back in Denver, her, her family – is still wondering where she is. Where's their daughter? Where's their sister? Where's their friend? Where's their now aunt, right? They mourn her as though she died because to Mm -hmm. them, she did in a way. Every year on Catherine's birthday, the family buys a cake and they celebrate her memory. And it's the only way they know how to cope with this very unique version of loss. Catherine, meanwhile, decides at this time to start a family of her own. She gets pregnant, and she has a son. She gets married to her first and only husband, and believe it or not, she confides in him her true identity, despite all the risks. I mean, that makes sense to me. That's somebody, that's your husband. It's going to be really hard to feel like you're actually in love with someone if they don't know who you are. So she tells him everything, and he protects her secret. He never reveals to anybody who she is. Well, not only that, she told him pretty early on in the relationship, so I think she knew. And I think it almost probably would endear them to one another more, right, to know someone's most precious secret. And it's actually said that he actually, after she told him, he went to the post office and looked at her photo just to sort of see it. 
in real time, which I think is interesting. Mm. So Catherine with her husband. Square that with the woman he knows now. Totally. Catherine with her partner. She makes new friends. She builds her family. She opens a tea shop in Corvallis. She becomes a beloved member of the community. But the trauma and the secret keeping, like that's never far behind in her mind. Catherine feels intense guilt because she should. I get that. Yeah. But it's a hard thing to walk around with and to know what to do with it. So she's sort of like, what do I do to get rid of this? Do I give to charity? Sure. So she's like, you know, given a lot to the Catholic Church. But it's not working. She's overcome with depression. And it's this constant fear of, am I going to be caught? Because her real name and picture stay on the FBI's 10 most wanted list until 1984. That's several years into this new life. But by May of 1992, Catherine's depression hits a fever pitch. And at that point, she decides enough is enough. And she first goes and seeks out therapy. And over the course of several sessions with her new therapist, she confides her real identity with this therapist and reveals that she needs help. She can't keep living like this. And her therapist is kind of awesome, I think. Like, they reach out to several lawyers because they're like, ooh, okay, okay, let's figure out what your options are. I want to help you, but this is a pretty unique situation. It is risky for both of us. And I don't know what legally my obligation is. Let's try to get all our bases covered together. And because of that, Catherine gets in touch with Stephen Black. He's a public defender, but what's interesting about him is he actually is a Vietnam veteran himself. He is kind of a big personality. He has this reputation for taking on untouchable cases. And like Catherine, the two of them sort of see each other in one another, right? Mm, Because mm -hmm. he is also living with intense guilt for what he did in Vietnam because he did things he's ashamed of. And Catherine has participated in things that she's ashamed of. So they have this sort of like intimate knowledge and understanding with each other. Yeah, they, and they have a whole a whole sort of thing that develops between them. Um, I hesitate to call it a friendship, but maybe that's what it felt like. It well, it certainly was romantic. Sort of... I want to make sure we're very clear. It's not a romantic relationship that no, no, not at all. But I think they want to help each other mm-hmm. get rid of these guilty feelings. And Catherine, by by meeting with him, understands what she has to do because she needs to stop living this lie. It feels like a ticking time bomb because her son is also getting older. And as he does, she can't totally square how to be a parent to him while keeping this enormous secret about her past from him. Mm-hmm. So I think that her wanting to be a a real part of a community and a real mother and not just like a fake half one in this strange way. She wants to well, give she herself wants to be over. more than just Alice Metzinger. She wants to tell her son that she's also Catherine and Power. Yeah, that's right. And so she decides that she's ready to face consequences for those actions all those years ago in hopes that she can end all the suffering that has come to pass since she met Stanley Bond at Brandeis all those years ago. Catherine can't just walk into the FBI and go, hey, you're looking for me. I'm right here. No, she has to play this very weird game of telephone. So Stephen calls a contact in Alaska who then contacts Boston to see what the exact charges against Catherine are so that he can start to negotiate with the DA there. Her lawyer wants her to get no more than three years, but the DA is like, "Mm, how about 15? (laughs) So when the FBI catches wind of these negotiations— they start working to convince Catherine to surrender. They want to be in the driver's seat, and they don't want to be subjected to the embarrassment of people finding out they're negotiating with a target. Not great. I mean, it's not a great look because here Catherine is trying to turn herself in. The FBI is kind of caught with their tail between their legs going, wow, we're now negotiating with the person we've been looking for. I also think what's interesting is the FBI – can very easily start to tail her attorney in Boston. So her attorney doesn't take any calls or doesn't call them from his office. He actually has to drive to a payphone 
to contact Stephen Black and Catherine Ann Power to negotiate. So it's like very, it just feels very covert and secretive, right? Mm -hmm. The FBI is using any sort of tactic to get her to come to the negotiation table and surrender. So they actually pass a letter from Catherine's family to her lawyer, and it says that they want her to come home, that they love her, they forgive her for what she's done. And when she gets this letter, I think it just bolsters her into surrendering more because she realizes my family still loves me. They haven't disowned me. And, you know, they've been waiting for my return for 20 years. I owe them that much. So a few months later in 1993, Catherine's lawyer calls the Boston DA and finds a compromise. They got to make this work for Catherine, for her family, and for the family of Officer Schroeder. The prison term will be 9 to 12 years, with eligibility for parole in five and a third of a year. Federal authorities want to give her a five-year sentence to be served concurrently for her role in the National Guard armory raid. They also try to tack on charges for other robberies that her team is suspected of committing during the same time. But what's interesting is they don't actually have enough evidence of Catherine's involvement. And as we said, she apparently was kind of on the sidelines of a lot of these robberies. In fact, I think just as an interesting note, in reality, the FBI doesn't actually have much evidence to convict her of the crimes that she's fully admitting to. It's kind of like this game of chicken that they're playing. Well, yeah, I think that's really interesting about it because, first of all, they wouldn't have caught her. She's the one, you know— in the driver's seat saying, I will show you where I am because I want to be tried for this stuff. I want to serve. And that's the other thing about it. If she was like, here I am and also not guilty, Mm -hmm. she might have served no time because, like you said, the evidence is just so scant. But that's not the point. She was very adamant about admitting guilt as part of a way for her to sort of become at peace with this past part of her life and living her life more authentically in the future. I also think that she could have gone to trial. She could have surrendered to the FBI and gone to trial. And I think it's also worth noting that she knew that a lot of people in Boston are angry with her and it's a conservative area or she was worried about some of the conservative sentiments against her. And she thought that if she did get convicted, they would throw the book at her. So this compromise was safe for her. In August of 1993, in the name of wrapping this all up and, you know, hopefully starting a new chapter of this new life as Catherine, she has to tell her teenage son her identity. Wow. And she has to tell him what she did and why she's going to go away for it. And I, I don't envy her. That must be impossible impossible because first her son is going to have to grapple with the knowledge that his mother he doesn't know her name he's been calling her some different name all her life all his life and does that make him even real i just feel like that would mess with your identity on so many levels i also think it's important we say teenage son i think he's around 13 at this time (laughs) like that's that's young That's so young for your whole life to be turned upside down in this way. Yeah, he's just a kid. And hearing this from his mom, you already have a complicated relationship with your mother when you are um, a tween or a teen. And the anger, the sadness, the confusion this must bring up in him. And, And not only that, but when he needs her most, because this is so hard, she has to leave him, which is awful for both of them. And she's going away for a while. She's not going to be there for prom. She's not going to be there for high school graduation or, I don't know, to teach him to drive. She is going to miss so much. But as a parent, you also have to set the right example and Mm -hmm. admitting past mistakes. And I think that's a huge part of why she does it. I think she's probably instilling lessons in him all the time as a parent. Where she's like, ooh, this is really the pot calling the kettle black. Like, I don't feel great about me saying this out loud when in my head I know what I have done. Within a few weeks, Catherine surrenders herself to the Oregon police and is transferred to custody in Boston. 
but not before she throws in a major potluck party and invites all of her neighbors and friends with tuna, polenta, tomato. Apple I mean, she's crumble. a chef. It Zucchini sounds, sauce. Listen, it's like very much last meal vibes. And, you know, Quinn and I actually talk about our last meals often. This is a very interesting, unique last meal that Catherine has. Once she surrenders, she's able to be reunited with her family. And a little silver lining of this is that her son gets a whole set of aunts and uncles and grandparents that he never knew he had. It's to me that 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 reunion, especially for her son who's about to lose his mom for a couple of years, he now has new family that he can count on who's so excited yeah. to see him and meet him. Yeah, that's so great. But Catherine also has to face the family of Officer Schroeder, right. the man who was killed by her friend, by her comrade. And she has to see his friends and other uniformed police. But I think facing his widow and those yeah. kids at the sentencing hearing. And at this point, because Catherine had accepted a plea deal, there's no trial. The only judgment that the judge can give is on sentencing. Um, and so, you know, the Schroeder family is there trying to make sure that she gets the maximum sentence because it would give them some peace. Yeah, and and by the end of the hearing, listening to these kids talk about what it was like to grow up without a dad, I, I think he's really moved to add as much as he can to these charges. He doesn't care that she negotiated a plea deal of 8 to 12. He wants her to face more. So what he does is add a provision of 20 years probation to her sentence with the caveat that she will not be allowed to profit from her story until her probation is over in 2013. Catherine Ann Power is then sent to Massachusetts' only female prison, and she tried to be moved to the West Coast to be closer to her family, but that never came to fruition, and she was released in 1999 for good behavior. I think it's important to point out, too, when her surrender happened, I think it was this really interesting moment where it was all of the radical violence and stuff from the anti-Vietnam War sentiment was kind of coming to a close, was coming to a close. It was like a, a it's like the book was closed on that chapter. It's like the chapter was closed. I'm not saying it correctly, but I guess what I think is important is when she turned herself in, the media was pretty mixed on how much time she got. And I think in Boston, where there's a lot of pro-police sentiment, I think they thought she got too little time. She got off too easily. Uh And I think elsewhere, they thought she's serving this time for not even pulling the trigger, for just being amongst this group of people. I think it's really interesting to see the mix. What do you think? Do you think it was too much or too little? Um, I think it's important to note that she was involved in robberies and thefts and things of that nature. And the amount of, you know, manpower that was wasted on searching, I'm sure there was a lot of money yeah. that cost, um, there was a lot of money, but I, yeah. I, I do have mixed feelings on it. Right. It's, uh-huh. I think for the Schroeder family, they wanted everyone who was involved to be held accountable. And for them, I'm glad that they got that form of justice. And I'm sorry it took so long for them to feel that closure. Um, but I also, I mean, we talked about this as well, where it's it's also really hard that as a 20, 21-year-old, you know, we all make really bad decisions you when fall we're in our with 20s the wrong and crowd. 20, we fall in with the wrong crowd. And I think yeah, that's what happened with I, her. I do think that's what happened too. But I also think that it, it's important to di- differentiate mm-hmm. because I think of the phrase uh, that comes to mind for me is, if your friend jumped off a bridge, would you do it? And I feel <laughs> like with Catherine, the answer was no. But I'll stand at the top of the bridge and, and make sandwiches. Like, uh, yeah. Yeah, I just think, like, she didn't jump. And the punishment should be a little different uh, for her because she was six blocks away. She she, she didn't brandish Throwing a up weapon on that at all. Wheel. And, yeah, I just, I don't know. I, I think this is, I'm going to call it Goldilocks. You know, I'm going to say this punishment was just right. And I don't think yeah. that... Um, I think the cards fell where they had to, and I hope that her son was able to forgive her and rebuild a relationship with her because I know how much that must have meant to her because she had to spend so much of her life sort of feeling alone. And I also hope for her that she 
she's not going to um, continue that cycle in the form of her son feeling that way. Totally. I think that's really well said. Um, but I think we're curious. Let us know what you think about this case, about Catherine Ann Power. You can use the hashtag crime of a lifetime to tell us your thoughts on social media because we're curious. We want to know. Thanks so much for listening, as always. Catch more gripping stories pulled straight from the headlines with all new original series and movies on Lifetime and stream on the Lifetime app or on demand. Check out mylifetime.com to find out what's airing because it just might be the case we talk about next. We used many sources in our research for today's episode. Among the most helpful were the following, an article from The New Yorker entitled Return of the Fugitive by Lucinda Franks, an article in The New York Times entitled 60s Radical Linked to a Killing Surrenders After Hiding 23 Years by Sarah Reimer, and an article from the AP entitled Catherine Ann Power Freed from Prison After Six Years. If you'd like to learn more about this story, we highly recommend you check out these sources. Crime of a Lifetime is produced by Tanner Robbins. Our associate producers are Hazel May and us, Quinlan Posner, and Carrie Ipema. Our sound designer and editor is Hans Dale Shee. Our senior producer is John Thrasher. McKamey Lynn is our supervising producer, and Jesse Katz is our executive producer. If you like what you hear on the show, please subscribe, rate, and review Crime of a Lifetime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Copyright 2023, a Television Networks, LLC. All rights reserved. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.